Welcome to Is This Working? The tools we use to work have changed drastically, but how we work hasn't. In this podcast, we explore how we can make work work better for us. We're your hosts, me, Anna Codrado, and me, Tiffany Philippou. Each week, we challenge conventional views about work by taking on topics like mental health, productivity, office culture, and even what the modern way of working means for our relationships. This isn't about the future of work. This is about what's happening in work right now. We're super excited to have our very first guest on the podcast this week. We've invited the journalist, documentary maker and housing campaigner, Vicky Spratt, to talk to us about class privilege and how it impacts our education, careers and whole lives, basically. Vicky is currently writing a book about the housing crisis called Tenants, which is due out next year. And if, like me, you rent your flat, you have a lot to thank Vicky for. As earlier this year, her Make Rent Fair campaign resulted in the introduction of the Tenants' Fee Bill that saw the ban on unfair letting fees for renters in the private sector. Through her work on the housing crisis and her political writing more broadly, what Vicky is really exposing, of course, is social injustice. If I were to characterise her writing as a whole, I would say it always comes back to one central theme how the mechanisms of class structure in this country inform our social policy and affect all of our lives, whether we realise it or not. Which is why we've asked her onto the show to talk to us about something as mammoth as how where we went to school impacts our careers. Vicky has had her own personal experiences of class prejudice. She recently wrote a piece for the iPaper about how she had to change her accent to fit in with her posh friends at uni. And I just want to read an extract from it as it gets to the heart of what we want to talk about on this episode. If you want to get ahead in this country, you have to emulate the elite. We know teachers with regional accents feel under pressure to sound more posh. Studies show accents deemed working class hold candidates back at job interviews. Half of all British workers believe that any sort of class-based or regional accent is a barrier to success. What's worse, there is a stigma attached to not talking properly, i.e. not changing the way you speak to sound like an elite group of people who make up a tiny proportion of society. Welcome to the podcast, Vicky. <laughs> so grim. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Um, I think probably the best place to kind of kick off this discussion about privilege is to hear your story about it. Well, I guess like I have a certain amount of privilege, right? Like I'm a white woman. I grew up um, in the Southeast, very, very close to London, well, more or less in London. So already I myself have a certain amount of privilege, but in the grand scale of privilege in this country, that I guess like is thrown into sharp relief when you go to somewhere like Oxford, which is where I ended up from my comprehensive state school in like suburban South London. Um, so I always knew I had a certain amount of privilege, but it was only then that I was like, wow, this privilege is so relative as in like, I qualified for EMA um, at one point free school meals and my dad lost his job and we lost our house. Um, and at Oxford, I was on like all the bursaries you could get and like grants that no longer exist. But I still felt like I was reasonably privileged because I knew people who had come from even um less well-off backgrounds than me and then suddenly I was like whoa what is this world what is this world where like 
at my school, some of the kids thought I was posh. Um, maybe partly because of the way I speak, which like obviously as everyone here knows, isn't really that posh compared to some people. Um, but then suddenly I was like, wow, I'm like the common one here. Like that's literally what someone said to me in my first few weeks at Oxford. Um, and I'd never encountered that kind of like pure prejudice. And I think since then as well, I've definitely encountered it in the working world. And it has really made me think, and that's why I think, think it's important to talk about this. Like, again, I have a certain amount of privilege. I have a platform and I can write and I have had the education that's enabled me to do that. I think it's really important to talk about it because it's like, wow, if I'm encountering that uh, with an Oxbridge degree and being a white woman, um, what are other people encountering? Going back to your experiences at Oxford, what was that like and what was it like encountering people who as you say were being prejudiced towards you and calling you a com commoner I mean like what what was that like it was horrific I dropped out for a year um it was so bad I, I was just like these people are wankers sorry to swear on your podcast was it like was it like bants or like did, why well, what, what's the, what's yeah, the like, what is, is, is bants like being horrifically rude to people yeah i guess it was bants to them how were they I'm yeah sure. i think that's what posh people think banter is right it's just like being horrific to people like it's it's it was awful and it's only now that i can truly reflect on how bad it was like i remember being at someone's birthday party and it was like the posh crew who all knew each other and this girl came up to me and like this guy who was having the party had this big house with like a big garden and swimming pool it was really nice um and she was like Vicky what sort of house do your parents live in I was like what kind of question is that like they just live in a house um and she was like you know is it like this I was like what does that even mean are you trying to gauge how much my parents house is worth because you can't place me in your like social scale of how important people are. And I confuse you because I'm here and I talk like you. Um, and I have always like adapted my accent. I think when I was at Oxford, I definitely changed the way I spoke and was like not speaking how I actually speak. Um, and I was just like, you're, you're, you're trying to place me because you can't place me and you don't know of the school that I went to. Um, you don't know who my parents are. So you're asking how big my house is to try and figure out what kind of person I am and how important I might be. And how did that make you feel? Just like, who are these people? And like, I just can't wait to get away from them. <laughs> no, I'm being very honest, like, no, no, no. But it was, it was awful. And I think that that is just how so much of society operates. And I was embarrassed and ashamed of my family. I was embarrassed. That was my gut reaction. Now I'm so embarrassed that that was my reaction that it made me feel shame because actually most people don't live in houses like that. Most people don't have massive swimming pools and acres and acres of land. Most people don't go to Oxford. Most people don't go to private school. But the fact that I felt ashamed for coming from a very normal, not even particularly low income, although at times technically low income background is just shocking. What kind of impact did it have on also your ability to actually study and do the work? I think looking back more than I realise. So obviously now I'm a journalist and I do like a lot of public speaking and it's really interesting so I don't really get nervous. Um, but at Oxford I literally couldn't speak in the first few weeks of getting there. Um, and I wasn't really like that at school. I remember being in a dinner in this huge fancy Harry Potter um, 
hall they're called it's just a massive room where people eat um and I remember being at this dinner and like surrounded by people and all the silverware was out on the table and I was like okay we're literally in Harry Potter now and this guy was sitting next to me and I just couldn't speak I was like nothing would come out I did not know what to say and in tutorials it was quite a similar thing I was like I know I'm obviously here because I got the grades and like someone thought I was clever enough to be here but I couldn't speak in tutorials and I would sit there and I'd have done all the work and just nothing would come out. Even when I tried, it was so hard. And I had to, it was only after taking, I mean, there was other stuff going on in my life at this time as well, which is like not totally relevant to this, but it's all in the mad about the pill investigation. But I, it was only after taking a year out working with normal people in a pub who did not go (laughs) to private schools and were not obsessed with how big my house was. Um, that, no, my house, my parents' house, that I could then go back to Oxford and be like, no, this is about the work. I know that I'm good enough to be here. Do not need to care about what anyone else thinks. Um, And I think at the time, maybe I suppressed quite how much that environment had affected my confidence, but it definitely, definitely did. And stuff like, everyone already knew each other. I was like, how do you all know each other? Because they all went to the same private schools. Right. And what people would ask, what school did you go to? And I'd be like, Oxted County School. And they would look at me with horror, like, oh, well, we don't know that one. I think this is probably a good time to acknowledge that both of us went to private schools. And that question of what school did you go to was something that was really normal in our circles, I would say, when we were at school. And it wasn't, I think, until um, university and then later in life that I realised what a loaded question that is. And now I actively try not to ask that question because I didn't realize that essentially it's it's basically saying what's your breeding well it's basically because I as I've now realized there's like a scale of of private schools right so some are better than others so it's such a loaded question because it's like what school did you go to really means how posh actually are you could you get into Eton how much money do your parents actually have did you go if you didn't go to one of the top private schools did you go to a middle private school did you go to like what I have heard described by posh people as a dodgy shit local posh school like I didn't even realize there was this hierarchy within the private education system yeah we're we're London day school if you'd like to place our one but I really vividly remember when I got you to university I went to Bristol and there were people in the in the class who had clearly done loads of work women and they weren't saying anything and I didn't know why. And I thought it was so odd because I was like, why would you not say anything if you've done all the work? And that was my first encounter with that. And I had no idea that- Confidence. Yeah. Yeah, right, exactly. And it's a double whammy, I think, if you maybe go to one of those top universities and you're a woman and you're from a state school. Although I thought the Amal Rajan documentary that I mentioned in my iPaper column is really interesting because that, that actually looked at the confidence of young men from low income backgrounds too. But it's like a double whammy because you, everything in your life has told you you're not supposed to be there. And then you're there in that situation. And you have to overcome all of these voices in your head at the same time as trying to be present in the moment. And then you end up doing all this extra work and it's completely exhausting. Meanwhile, someone in the corner is like trying to suss you out and work out how rich you are. What impact do you think not having that confidence and entitlement had while you're at university specifically? I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing, right? So 
I don't want to project too much onto it now, but I do think it was a big part of why I found Oxford so difficult. Um, I'd never encountered wealth and privilege like that. Not really, I don't think. And the wealth and privilege is one thing, but the, the rudeness and the snobbery that came with it, I'd never encountered. Sometimes even from the tutors. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't want to identify any of them by quoting. And I think this quote would really give someone away. Um, but I knew of a tutor who, I, I knew of tutors who had policies for only letting in kids from state schools so they could berate them. And I knew of tutors who would only like admit kids who went to the schools that they went that they knew or went to, and it, it's just a, well. I think I hope Oxford has like come into the light now, but it uh, definitely had some incredibly dodgy practices. I'm really shocked. Um, so that someone might say, "Oh, that's just Oxford." How do you? How did you see that also play out when you started to enter the workplace? Oh, I've seen it, and I saw it before Oxford a bit, to be honest, just not on that scale. Because where I'm from, kind of like suburban South London, just where South London ends and Surrey begins, there's a lot of wealth in that area too. So I already knew that my mum's kind of mo was to seem a lot posher than we were, even when there were bailiffs knocking on the door and we couldn't afford a supermarket shop. So it had been instilled in me from a young age that you do that whole like hyacinth bouquet thing of keeping up appearances. Um, I wasn't completely naive about how class works before Oxford. That was just kind of seeing it writ large. But in terms of working, uh, I have worked for <laughs> politicians who have um, been brilliant. And I've worked for politicians who have been incredibly uh, strange about the fact that I didn't go to a school that they know of. I don't know how to put that in like a more articulate way. Let's just say that you command a certain amount, amount of respect if you go to a certain school and someone else went there, I think is what I'm trying to say. Did you feel a certain awkwardness around, especially if you're in those kind of political spheres, was there a certain awkwardness on the part of the person from the quote unquote educated, private school educated, whatever it was background projecting onto you? Is that kind of what you're? That has happened. Yeah, that has happened. Like I feel patronized often, even still to this day. Um, someone recently, just like assumed that I wouldn't own a house because I went to a state school and I was like oh mate I did help to buy so like I don't know why you would assume that I wouldn't own a house because I didn't pay for my education um that was a work thing but actually I've had the opposite problem in a lot of ways because I think obviously again I'm white I'm from the south of England I don't have a regional dialect I have in what in many ways is quite a classless accent um I could be from anywhere so people always assume that I'm really posh. It actually has recently has more or less worked the other way. These days, people are quite shocked to find out that I went to a state school because so many journalists are privately educated. I think a lot of people assume that I also would be, and that's a fair assumption. Um, but maybe that is testament to how hard I worked to fit in in the spheres that I was moving in. What does it feel like to work in an industry where it's so overwhelmingly occupied by people from 
privately educated backgrounds. It's just tiring. So boring. It's like we all know this has to change. I'm I'm not even interested in it anymore. That's why I just focus on the work that I do because it's like so predictable. And these conversations about class and education in Oxbridge just erupt on Twitter all the time. And it's just journalists talking to each other in this giant echo chamber, thinking they're saying something new. They're not. And it's our job to get out there into the world and talk to people about their experiences. And we'd be much better at doing that if Twitter didn't exist. Twitter didn't <laughs> exist. And also if we were all from more diverse backgrounds, right? Like I think that's, I think it's a really big problem. Uh, obviously I bring a certain amount of experience of knowing what certain things are like, like being worried about your parents not having any money at a young age, that kind of thing. Um, but there are so many people who have, you know, a whole host of experiences that aren't reflected in media, which means those stories don't maybe get told the way that they should be told. And it's definitely not just media. This is across the board in, quote, like, I don't know, powerful jobs where people have platforms and influence. We know that it's a big problem in politics, which obviously is reflected. I mean, my beat is housing, so don't get me started on how this has informed housing policy. If you've never worried about um, where you're going to live, then obviously you would think social housing is toxic. If no one in your family ever lived in social housing, then obviously you wouldn't see the importance of it. Um, so it, it influences so much of the way our country is run. I mean, there's that statistic that it's, uh, what, 7% of the population is privately educated, but there's something like 60, 60% of Westminster is um, privately educated or more. I don't actually have the stats um, off the top of my head, but we can link them in the show notes. But the point is that less than 10% of the country is privately educated, and yet the majority of those ruling the country are privately educated. And... I mean, that's just, it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> there was also the stat which was, um, which was from the Amal Rajan documentary that you mentioned, where it said that um, even if you get a 2-2 degree, you're more likely than someone from a working class background who's got a first to get a job in the elite professions, which is so depressing because it literally shows that that, narrative of work really hard get to uni just isn't true because even if you get there the problems continue i couldn't get any journalism grad schemes after uni why do you think that was because you said you have got quite good at molding into that pretense well what do you think held you back i actually asked every time i got rejected i asked and they said i didn't have enough interning experience several big publications said that to me and I would reply and be like, I can't afford to intern. I'm not interning. And there were certain people who I was like in the same class as at Oxford, whose parents just happened to know presenters of prominent BBC programs and they got work experience. Um, but my mom would have, was always like, no, like we're not gonna pay for you to work. It doesn't make sense. Um, and I think that kind of stuff comes into it as well the idea that you would work for free to get work experience, to get a job. This again is all in this brilliant um, BBC Two documentary is inherently rooted in the idea that you have a certain amount of money and somewhere to live. Um, and I think that's a massive problem and a huge barrier to entry to so many professions. Well, yeah, of, of course, because even if it's not 
um, even if it's not that your parents are necessarily connected to someone in that particular industry, but it's just having a home in London or someone who can hook you up with, you know, the, a parent's friend's spare room or something, even that is a huge leg up than, you know, living anywhere outside of London and not having those connections and not being able to go and get that experience. I mean, I think unpaid internships are just they just need to be abolished. There's there's absolutely, there, there's a difference between, you know, when you're 15 and you, you know, take your daughter to work day or whatever. But as a university graduate or anyone kind of over the age of 16, having to do an internship and not get paid for it just so that it looks good on an application so that you can then get a, a job. That's, it's just, it's, it's just wild to me. It's also cheap labor for many people. I've like... Yeah, I've worked places where there are interns and I'm like, you're just fully doing a job. Um, none of the places I'm currently working at, I should add. But I think that's another massive, massive problem. But this is where class comes into it because if you need that work, it's very difficult to question it. And I think that's why I talk about these issues now because for so long, I don't think I talked to anyone about how I felt about any of this because I just wanted to fit in. How did you break into journalism? It's a really good question. Um, which bit of the answer am I allowed to give? I <laughs> I was working as a ghostwriter for a very, very prominent politician who I am not allowed to name. And I really, really wanted to be a journalist and I'd been rejected from every single job. But by this point, I had got quite a lot of experience of working for MPs. So I applied to be a political producer at what is now Politics Live, but then was Daily Politics. And because I had worked for all of these politicians for maybe on and off like two or three years, I had an incredible context book. And that's how I got the job. Because as a journalist, what you need is a, is a context book. And I had worked really hard and built, and built one up. And um, Daily Politics gave me a, a chance. And from there, I went to do all sorts of things at the BBC. Um, and I just worked really hard. Did you feel like you had to work harder than your more privileged counterparts? It's a really good question. I don't know that I ever had the time to think about it. So it's quite difficult to answer. Also, I don't want to generalize about people who are privately educated because I think that's really lazy and unhelpful. Like, I know you both and we're friends and you both work incredibly hard. Like I'm not, um, I don't think, I don't think it's like class warfare and pitchforks. Um, and I know so many people I went to school with who just don't work that hard. So I think it's really important not to generalize, but, um, I guess I always knew that I had to work really hard to create opportunities for myself because they weren't going to happen otherwise. It's interesting you talk about the class warfare, because I certainly think what happens is there that naturally always comes out of the conversation. So what I mean is it's so hard for people to talk about this maybe from our side of the table or from your side of the table actually we're not on opposite. I shouldn't say we're on opposite sides of the table there is physically a table here um but we're, we're all friends but it is such a hard thing to talk about and yes. what can we do about that because I feel like people are either angry or shamed or feel shamed in different ways like right and it's so emotive and someone might listen to this and be like you know well Vicky is like quite privileged like as I've acknowledged in some ways and I think this is the problem we try and put people into boxes and it doesn't really help 
advance any kind of conversation. I think talking about it's really important. Acknowledging it's really important. Um, having given it great thought, I would really like to see the abolition of private schools. And I think that's really necessary. I can't see a political climate in the near future in which that would possibly happen. And then you're getting into quite tricky nanny state, dictatorial territory. Um, I don't know how I feel about that, but I do think that would be an incredible leveler if we opened up the education system. What does that look like? What's the mechanism for it? I don't know. But um, increasingly I'm coming to the conclusion that private schools shouldn't exist. I mean, I think I agree with that, even as someone who has been privately educated and has received so much benefit from that system. Um, it's something that is, it's, I think, a lot about, and it's something that's really hard to square in your mind, particularly when we're talking about schools, because it's not it's not a story that's entirely your own so i went to private school because that's the choice my parents made for me and that's not me saying that therefore i'm exempt from kind of talking about my own privilege um but i am very 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 grateful for everything that i have got as a result of that not only that decision but also of course the hard work and everything that my parents did to kind of get me there but at the same time I I guess I don't know what the necessarily the kind of the feeling words are around this, but um, I guess guilt is kind of a big one that, uh, you know, why why do I have certain, why do I have a certain um, opportunity or even kind of something as uh, more intangible as a certain confidence that someone who didn't receive that kind of education has. Uh, so yeah, it's, I don't know. It's a really, it's a really, it's a huge thing. This is not, this is not like in previous episodes where we can just give people the Pomodoro technique to kind of get better about managing their time. Uh, you know, how, how we kind of tackle, uh, privilege and sort of the education system, I think is something that maybe is beyond the three of us kind of just fixing in this room this, this afternoon. But yes, it's that thing where you have to start the conversation about it and you have to acknowledge it and you have to have difficult conversations about it i think transparency is really important i think i agree i think it's really scary as a privately educated person to admit the advantage you've had because you're fearful it will undermine your experience or or even i don't feel this way but that something might be taken away from you and i think that that's where the challenge is because people are scared that if i speak out a i might get criticized because it's such a hard thing to talk about or b someone's going to say well she doesn't deserve to be where she is and all that kind of thing but what I think is really interesting about mine and Anna's position is we look and talk the talk because essentially we were brought into that education system but actually behind the scenes we have foreign parentage we are not blue-blooded but in a way that makes it more obvious to me what an unfair advantage it is mm. And it is that ease and it is that entitlement. And it is what I was saying about when I got to university. I was I could not believe that people who had done work, I was like, what's the point in doing work if you're not showing off about it? And it's that ingrained thing, which is just so obviously unfair. It's interesting, when I met you guys, I was like so scared of you. 
I don't know if you would ever. And people often say that about us. <laughs> no, but I was like, these girls and your entire group of friends, I was like, they're just breezing through life. Like, they're so confident. They all know exactly what they want to do. They have these amazing jobs. And I was so, um, I think intimidated is the word, to be completely honest. And yeah, I felt like an imposter around you I mean that is a hallmark of girls who went to our school that is that was something that um I would say was even maybe explicitly drilled into us that um I mean again and and I I really don't want to go down this road of kind of trying to sort of justify how you know we went to a different kind of private school and it wasn't a public school and all this kind of stuff because I think that's really but most people by the way most people don't even know the difference between private and public school I think that's like a really important point as well right yeah what what even is it it's like this like there's like another league where you're at like the top top of the private school food chain exactly and also i mean not to put too fine a point on it but also those sort of the public schools that bring in the reputation of um being really elite i mean those are mainly all boys public schools or at least historically have only admitted boys and maybe only in the last few years have started to let girls in so or clearly, we, well, yeah, we didn't go to one of those schools, but um, uh, I, you know, our school was founded um, by a feminist, and you know, it was founded because um, to actually give girls the same quality, high, high level of education. So it was always sort of drilled into us that um, yeah, that we were bright and that you know we should really focus on our confidence and sort of smash that glass ceiling and all of those things. Which, it, on the one hand, yes, that's a really, really strong and positive feminist message. But then also there comes hand in hand this more difficult side to it, which is is that instilling a certain kind of entitlement? It definitely felt like you are the leader, future female leaders and it's the world is yours for to go out and conquer and it's a great because you're actually beating the patriarchy and men so in a way we had a legitimacy to ignore our privilege if that makes sense yeah it makes complete sense and <laughs> um, you know yeah. there is there is like a huge gender problem in the world so it makes sense and like i don't think any of that like negates either of your achievements um, but I can say that at my school, no one ever said any of that to me. <laughs> and in fact, like, because um, no one in my family had ever been to uni before. I was the first person to go to uni. My sister and my cousin both went. On the other side of my family, I actually don't think either of my cousins went to uni. I need to check, but I don't think they did. Um, and I remember when I like got an interview for Oxford, there was literally no one that could give me any interview coaching. And I remember the headmaster, not headmaster, but the head of sixth form, like doing this mock interview with me and he just sat there and he was like to be honest you probably know more about this than I do um and like that was what was instilled in me not like go get it you've got this (laughs) whereas on the flip side the kind of the getting into Oxbridge was a whole to do at our school and there was an army of teachers who everyone was expected to do a mock interview regardless of whether or not they were even going to apply I think it was a given that you would apply to Oxbridge our school does pump out something like I don't know how many you know we had, we had the highest number of people from our school year go to Oxford from one school ever all that year I need to check that 
but it was <laughs> insane. It was in the papers. So wild. Yeah, and it was it it was it was yeah, we, didn't we we didn't go. We didn't neither of us got in. <laughs> but um but you see, that's interesting as well, because like now I get crap for the fact that I went to Oxford. So I see on Twitter people being like, fucking Oxford, all the journalists went to Oxford. And I'm like, yeah, I guess we all did. But also like, I really hate being lumped in with that, even though I went there. Because I'm like, you have no idea how fluke it was that I even got in. Like, you don't know what like an anomaly I am. <laughs> well, this is, this is the real, this is the thing. It's, you know, and it's... um again it's something it's I don't do not think this is a good path to go down but when you when you try to explain the context around your privilege I think it's really important but at the same time I don't feel comfortable with this idea of sort of a tiered privilege saying well you know like in my case I can say why well, I'm privately educated but I'm an immigrant so therefore you know I for a long time I think I naively used to think and say that I sort of I, I don't really the, the, I don't, you know, I fall outside of the class system because I'm an immigrant. Um, I don't, I, I think that's a really naive and stupid thing to say now. Um, but uh, it's, you know, it, but it, it's the same time, it's uh, it's really, really hard because I, I read this quote somewhere, actually, um, this, um, this woman I came across in sort of researching for this episode, she's developed a card game to sort of give people the tools to talk about social injustice. And she talks about how the problem is systems of oppression like class like race like ableism all of these things they are so huge and they feel so big and kind of you can't really kind of pick at them but when you experience them the experience is so personal and is so affecting that it's a very very difficult thing to wrap your head around and it's also a really hard thing to find the language to talk about um, I mean, this is obviously not helped by the fact that we each have a table here and two mic- two microphones, and we're sharing one. But it, this is this is uh, you know this is a difficult conversation even to have amongst friends. So uh, you know, it, it's just hard, is all I'm saying. I just I thought it was interesting how Vicky you said this doesn't negate your achievements. I'd actually go. I think the first step is for people like us to say, actually, we are where we are because of our unfair advantage. That doesn't mean you're going to take it away from me. <laughs> I mean, maybe you'll take over this podcast, but you know, and, and I'm not afraid of that. And then let's, let, let's start there. Cause I think so many privately educated, successful people say, yes, it's not fair, but you know, there's lots of forms of privilege and, but, but they go, but I really, you know, I'm here because I worked hard and I hustled and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, no, but you knew how to hustle. You had the confidence to hustles. You know how to build a network, even if you don't have it, because you know how to send a good follow-up email or you make someone feel at ease. Or even just to have the confidence to send the follow-up email. Even that. So I think it's fine to admit that that is why we might be here. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, it's so di- it's so difficult to talk about. Maybe the fact that I didn't for years is testament to that. But also because I do acknowledge that I am privileged in so many ways. And also I I think class is quite an unhelpful way to talk about it, which is another article I wrote for the iPaper. Jeremy Corbyn said he wanted to stop talking about social mobility and stop talking about social injustice. I think that's far more helpful. because I think a far more useful metric of privilege is wealth. You can consider yourself to be working class, but you can have a lot of money in the bank. You can consider yourself to be posh and have very little money in the bank, right? Like, I don't know how helpful class is as a metric. And there was a really good, um, I think it was a British social attitude survey recently, like as in recently as in the last five years, the majority of people consider themselves to be working class. 
what does working class even mean? I think quite a few members of my family consider themselves to be working class, apart from the ones who have worked really hard to seem middle class. Um, I don't really know what class I am. I'm, I'm such a mixed bag. Like at points in my life, my parents have been in serious financial trouble because they've been trying to keep up appearances and give me and my sister opportunities that they probably couldn't afford. Um, but also I am middle class now. I went to Oxford and I'm a journalist and by hook or by crook, I own a home, um, even if it's with Help to Buy, which is an abhorrent scheme for many reasons. Uh, I'm writing a book, like I'm middle class, right? That I go to wine bars, um, the true marker of what class you are. <laughs> to me, middle, middle middle class is wine bar. Um, I, d- I don't know. Like this is why class isn't really that helpful because it's so subjective. I think I think this is kind of go back to my early point. I think this is why for a long time I said I didn't re- I didn't really belong in the class system because once you say you're not even actually you know pro- really British, where are you really from? Because you've got a foreign surname. Yes, it might be double barreled, but not double barreled for the reasons that most British people's surnames are double barreled. Um, I, you know, I, I can't, I feel, I sort of felt like I existed outside of the whole system, but I think to me that definitely runs, which is a whole separate issue that runs more into the sort of your identity as a British person, as an immigrant and all of that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, to your point, I think it's true. We can just talk cold, hard numbers. Um, I actually saw something similar, uh, in relation to Americans and when surveyed, you know, all America, you know, majority of Americans want to call themselves middle class, but actually when you look at the numbers, um, a huge proportion of them were technically upper middle class because they were earning over <clears throat> what, a, what um, they're earning over a certain threshold of money, which I think was a joint household income of one hundred seventeen thousand dollars a year or something like that. So when you look at it just in terms of your income, that's a much more helpful metric rather than this very subjective feeling. Right, exactly. So I think the good measures are: Did you go to a fee-paying school? Could you afford to work for free? Could you afford to rent a house in London while you worked for free? Do you own a house now? Who bought it for you? <laughs> um, how much you have in savings? Did you inherit it? I think these are far more useful markers of if we're going to call it class or wealth or whatever than um, talking about class as this kind of amorphous thing because. Um, especially in recent history, it's changed, class has changed so much, right? As the quote that's always floating around goes, like we're all middle class now. Um, so many of us are. And in fact, the people who are in truly very low income, very, very difficult situations, that group of people has got smaller over time. Really, really precarious. I mean, there's no social housing, so people living in social housing, that group has shrunk down. Um, we're all middle class now, but are we? I don't know. What can we do about this workplace problem? I'm just thinking back to that documentary and both Elvis and Amar just broke my heart because they were very, for anyone who's not seen this BBC documentary, I highly recommend it, but they, um, the journalist follows around um, a group of graduates who are very high achieving and watches them try and get jobs. And he also talks to recruiters who use this word polished to say, oh, they're not polished. Um, my own experience of that in work is people say they're not a culture fit. And all that means is they don't make me feel comfortable and they're not like them. Can we do anything about that? It's so ingrained. 
No, you're, <laughs> I, I'm shaking my head because I, I don't know. And having been in jobs now where I've hired people, I have really had to check my own unconscious biases. Do I hire in my own image? Do I always hire the best candidate? Or do I favor the person who went to a state school? That's a question I've asked myself um, when I've been interviewing. And I think we all are comfortable around what we know or if we feel like we've suffered an injustice and we see someone else who we're projecting our feelings about that onto, we want to champion them. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's still unconscious bias. So I think we need to have these conversations, but to me, the solution really is investing in the state education system, in having this training for people, like having someone to say to kids at my school, one of the largest comps in the country, you can do anything within reason. I don't think we should tell people they can do anything. You can do anything within reason that you want to do. And this is like the confidence that you need to go and do it. Um, and to properly make kids feel supported no matter what background they're from. Um, and not to have this system where if your parents don't have much money, you end up in more debt to go to uni. That was not the case when I went to uni and I was able to get grants and bursaries that I haven't had to pay back. I don't even know if I would have gone if it was the situation that it is now because I don't think I would have been able to cope psychologically with being in that much debt. The amount that I have stresses me out. And like, I think back, She's actually a really dear friend of mine, so I won't uh, identify her, but at least I hope I won't. Um, Someone I lived with at uni, I remember her telling me, it's actually so shameful, the pretense that I put up. Like, I think there are so many people who just have no idea what I was going through and how much debt I was in. Um, She told me that her dad had put her entire student loan into an ISA, because it's a really good idea to get the interest. Uh, and he was just paying her a monthly allowance while we were at uni. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. Great idea. Yeah, I'm going to do the same. Because I was so embarrassed. I was like, what? You don't need that money. And you're just going to pay worse, it. you're taking it to make money off it. And then you're going to pay it back at the end, but keep the interest. She was like, yeah, and dad says I can keep the interest. And I was like, that's so smart. We're talking about what, like over 20 grand? And stuff like that. So like, no wonder people think I'm from a background that I'm not from, because I was just trying to fit in and seem normal. That's not normal, but that was normal at my uni. Were there people like you though, or did you just not access them? Were you in the college? Like how did, were other people experiencing similar? There were other people who went to state schools, of course. Yeah, there were. And there were actually quite a few in like my particular cohort. Um, I think we've all recently, because of the articles I've written, quite a few of them have got in touch and been like, yeah, it was so bad. And I definitely noticed because I was able to code switch, I would call it code switching, um, dress a certain way, talk a certain way, play the part of being someone who's quite posh. Um, I think I blended in. So I rolled in very different circles to those people. I noticed that they didn't have particularly active social lives in a couple of one in particular who I've spoken to recently has told me how unhappy she was. They really did keep themselves to themselves. They did not feel like they fitted in. Um, and it's horrible that anyone would feel like that. But it's, it does also come down to money. Cause like in some ways I was quite well off at uni cause I had my student loan grants and Oxford bursaries. I was like rolling in cash and credit card debt. So I was buying dresses to go to these balls that all these fancy boys were inviting me to and these parties and like no one would have known but then also no one knew five years later that I had like nearly 13 grand's worth of credit card debt. 
Um, was it not really exhausting having to kind of play this role and f- do all of this stuff to feel, to try and pass and fit in? Yeah, I guess so. I've only just really started to think about it now and I really can't be asked with it anymore. So maybe that's partly why I'm thinking about it. Cause like, I don't want to spend that kind of money on crap. Um, but at the time, I don't think I realized how much pressure I was putting on myself. And also once it's kind of coming back to the story about the girl who asked what kind of house my parents lived in, I think because she couldn't place me because I'd made myself so difficult to place deliberately. Yeah, no wonder I was knackered. <laughs> and I should, the, the saddest part is I should have just been focusing on the learning and I mean, I think we all could have. Yeah, I think that's pretty common to everybody. But it's really, it's really interesting. And I think, I just think it's really important to talk about, but I do think the solutions and, and the solutions to solving these inequalities in the workplace is what well have to come back to more funding, better um, interview training at schools from people who actually know what they're talking about um, and instilling confidence in kids, no matter what their background is. And it's very hard for teachers at a state school. I in no way hold anyone accountable for me not having those things. Like they were so stretched. And as I understand it, I'm not an education journalist, but things are even worse now. They do not have the resources to have this kind of one-on-one mentorship. Um, And I was lucky in so many ways because I was like a straight A student. So I definitely got special treatment and like more attention because certain teachers were like, we know we need to help you because you're doing really well. But if you were falling between the cracks and maybe not getting straight A's, if you have a limited amount of time, where are you going to direct it? It's really interesting you talk about that because our friend Hannah Rosefield, who's a teacher at Harvard, said that when they get to Harvard, the privately educated kids use the office hours a lot more because they're used to having much smaller classrooms and more attention and they feel more I mean, not this is a generalization, but in general, they've seen this pattern. They feel more entitled to take the lecturer's time, whereas public school in the American sense, so that's freely people educated for free, are much less likely to come and use lecturer's time and one-on-one time. And I just think that shows just how ingrained that difference in education can be. It's It's about feeling entitled to ask for help. And something I've only realized recently now that I am confident enough to say like I'm an expert in my field as a housing journalist who like writes about society, sometimes it's okay to say you don't know the answer. And actually the smartest people, the most well-read people, the most well-researched people will sometimes say in answer to a question, do you know what? I don't have the answer to that, but why don't we think about this, this and this? But I spent years thinking that to say I don't know meant you were stupid because no one had ever told me that you could be an expert and have confidence and sometimes not know things. And I think that comes into it too. It's so difficult to pin down, but it's constantly feeling like you need to perform in order to be accepted or to get a job or to be in that job, but for people to think that you're particularly good. We've talked quite a lot about this very high level I mean we've talked about how we need to abolish private schools and sort of invest in education and and all of these very sort of big top level things that um I guess are happening on the micro level as I like to talk about on this podcast what can we do is there anything we can do us as individuals what should we be doing how should people like us who have been to private schools be talking about our privilege what 
what can we as individuals do? I think transparency is really important. So I think everyone should just be honest about how they Put got... in your Twitter bio. Maybe. I don't know if we need that, but like just to acknowledge the opportunities that we've had and how we got them. Um, I think that's really important. I don't know if like... This is, but this is me saying this is like a state school educated person. I hope no one will take offense. But I find the guilt so intensely annoying. I'm so sorry, but it really does my head in because I'm like, look, I'm just trying to crack on and like get stuff done. I really don't need people to feel sorry for me. I'm fine. (laughs) But this is a structural issue. And I think it's really good that people want to talk about it and fix it. But we need to fix the structure and like lobby for the structure to be fixed. Lobby for more funding, lobby for more opportunities, lobby for more unconscious bias training and internships. Yeah, I think that would really, really help. Um, But then companies need to have the funds to give people work experience who wouldn't otherwise have had it. I think if we just ban internships outright, then people who got in through the back door will continue to get in through the back door. And maybe those schemes that other people who don't have connections would like save up loads of money so they could do would disappear. And I don't think that would be good either. I know people who did that, like worked, graduated, worked in a pub for a year and then came down to London, did an internship so they could get a job in publishing. Um, We still need to have those schemes. They just should be fairly paid. Uh, but it's such a difficult question to answer. Um, and it's so it's so intrinsic to Britain. This country is such a class-based society. Um, and I see this so much in my work, how housing has really kind of re-entrenched that to the point now where I worry that it's it's almost rolled back to a point where we were at when my grandparents were like younger than I am now at 31 when they were given a council flat and that was a springboard for them to have a life that was unimaginable to their parents that doesn't that provision doesn't really exist anymore so people who have less money are in unstable housing situations often paying more on rent than people who have mortgages and that just reinforces this cycle so it's so big it's much bigger than private schools it's about your your opportunities in life and how much money you have and how much like it's that classic thing isn't it is it called the white good tax like the less money money you have the more things cost you that's true of housing that's true of your white goods like your fridge and your kettle or whatever it's um true of borrowing because you might be using a payday loan or a crappy credit card instead of a low interest loan because you own a home so you're less of a risk it bleeds into absolutely everything so it's so much bigger then let's just let's abolish private schools or like talk about our privilege more. I think it's properly structural. That's quite a down down note for us. Yeah, but, but but it's no, but it's true. It's true. Yeah, it really but is. also you can there is there is positive stuff to say, right? Because like again, I acknowledge my various privileges, but like I'm doing what I'm doing and I've done it. I made it work. Um because I was incredibly lucky to have a few people along the way who mentored me or like believed in me and told me to get over this lack of confidence that I had particularly like one tutor at Oxford who was like I get it you just need to get over this but she took the time to take me aside and say that um and it it can be done and like there are so many incredibly talented people from all kinds of backgrounds doing amazing things in this country 
we just need to get to a point where they're like not the exception yeah I, I agree I mean that's the thing is you can't you can't kind of hold up a few people as your token examples of oh well we've ticked this diversity box whichever one it might be so we we're done we've done the work now um and you know someone who i respect immensely but who i think is kind of a symbol of this is stacy dooley stacy dooley is i've never met her but she's clearly really hard working she's always working from what i can see about like from her output but the bbc put her up as a front woman for documentaries and it's like well she's from a working class background she's got a Luton accent so we've ticked that box but then you look at their stats if you look at the BBC's gender pay gap stats well that was terrible but then if you drill down into that data even more what was worse than this gender pay gap stats is class pay gap stats privately educated people who work at the BBC earn a lot more than state school educated people who work at the BBC the majority of people in top jobs at the BBC are privately educated so it's not enough just to have figureheads and be like oh look great it needs to continue to trickle down if you're going to give Stacey Dooley an opportunity then you need to give other people an opportunity and that's not I'm not singling I think she's brilliant that's why I'm mentioning it and the fact that she exists is some kind of progress the fact that we hear her accent on prime time tv slots is some kind of progress but we shouldn't even be thinking about that because more people sound like her than sound like boris johnson yeah exactly it shouldn't be that there's 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 definitely space in the bbc for more than one stacy Dooley. and space in britain for so many people to represent different backgrounds the challenge is I'm just thinking back to that documentary and also my own experience of working in a slightly high end, you might want to put in inverted commas company once, where in they talk about this thing about polish and how the accent thing's really interesting because with the in the doc in the BBC documentary when they said, Oh, they need to sell or they need to sell to rich people, so they need to look a certain way. And it was absolutely crushing to watch that part how do we how do we change that in the workplace like how do we say actually someone from a different background could sell someone in finance something or whatever the example is or pr or all these facing roles like how do we change that attitude that you need to look and look and sound a certain way in certain roles in companies isn't that the million dollar question um we need more people to from with more with more diverse backgrounds and more diverse accents and dialects to be in prominent positions i can't think of a prime minister in my living memory who had a regional accent can you no and actually i was just watching that documentary that andrew neil did about um he did actually 10 years ago about how um there were sort of three prime ministers in a row that had all gone to eton and we've done a complete 180 on the pedigree of prime ministers. And we went, there was a phase, obviously Margaret Thatcher kind of being sort of at the at the height of this, where uh, state-educated state prime ministers were becoming the norm. And then we just did a whole 180 on that. Thank you, David Cameron. But even the Labour shadow cabinet doesn't have many regional accents. Right. This is a problem across the board. Jeremy Corbyn's privately educated, right? Yes, yeah. And a lot of the cabinet as well sent their kids to private schools, which yeah. is shadow cabinet, which it's interesting you actually brought that up because 
there's this argument often used in these conversations, which is when it comes to your kids, you'll feel differently. You'll do all you can and you'll want to give them that opportunity, aka unfair advantage. And you'll understand when you get there. Is that just so ingrained in our society's attitudes or maternal instincts, whatever it might be, that we just will never change the attitude? I mean, if you have the money, right? Like if you have the money, maybe you'll do it. But the percentage of people who have the money is so small. I, I often don't bring this up because it just complicates my story even more. But I, I did go to a private primary school, prep school, they call them, for like two or three years, very briefly. Um, my dad is so complicated and it's very much his story to tell, so I don't want to go too much into it. But he briefly had an incredibly well-paid job, but um, it was like a tiny amount of time and he had a breakdown and hasn't worked since. So for a few years, my parents put me and my sister into this like local prep school that was fee paying. And um, I we were so young, but that was wild too, because it's like, my parents can't afford this. And even after my dad lost that job, like he literally, it was like a, a blip in time for all of our lives. I think they got into debt to try and keep us there. You know, it's really interesting that you just said that it's not your story to tell, because I think that is something that is very difficult about, at least at least how I see this. It's a really hard conversation to have because so much of this is about parents' choices as well. And it there are aspects of my education story that are not my story to tell. And I think that, at least for me, makes having the conversation at least in a public in a public on a in a public forum it makes it hard for me to have this conversation in private it might be a different story but in a public forum i don't feel i can sit here and talk about you know the choices that why my parents chose to educate me in the way they did well you can talk about it in a nuanced and kind way which is i think like all any of us can try and do i suppose with that i feel incredibly sad and i feel incredibly guilty that my parents who really could not afford that felt because of the societal pressures that you were just talking about, Tiffany, that that was the right thing to do. Like you come from a quote, working class, whatever that means, background, make a little bit of money quick, get your kids into a private school, even if you can't afford it. Even if you're taking out loans, which I, I know that they were to do it. Why, what made them feel like that? And at the point where, I mean, I remember opening the door to bailiffs more than once why like I it blows my mind that they ever felt like that was what they should be doing and that speaks to so many issues all of the stuff we're talking about here like your opportunities will be better we know that they will be it's not a lie um well yeah I mean I think that is just a such a brilliant but so tragic metaphor for how someone could feel that it's there is such pressure and 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 to your point this kind of maternal paternal instinct that all parents want is the absolute best for their kids and if we live in a society where that basically which tells us basically that is getting them the best possible education and that must come from the private sector that they will put everything on the line to do that for them um and i remember there were two other kids at this school <laughs> We would some days get like, for this brief time that I was there, we would um, be asked to go to the headmaster's office and to like sit there. And it was always the same three of us because our parents hadn't paid the fees. 
<laughs> so I was like, sorry, you can't, you can't learn today because uh, your fees are overdue. And it was always the same three of us. And like, we were not the ones who like stayed there throughout the whole time. And the shame that I've internalized even from that, right? Like that is something I'm only just beginning to address. Well, I mean, um, our producer has commented on how often we bring Brene Brown into this, but the dominant emotion, obviously, that we've been talking about is shame. And that is shame on the part of people who feel excluded. And also there is also, I think, shame on the part of people who have privilege. Um, And the issue with shame is that it silences us, as Tiffany often likes to talk about. Maybe you can describe this better than I can. Yeah, it's interesting because there's shame which silences us. So, and then there's guilt. And just you said you find that the guilt tiresome, which I completely can empathize with, especially if people are projecting their guilt onto you. It's not, that's not very helpful, really, just because you might be the few working class background or whatever we might want to call it person they've come across. And what Brené Brown did say though is shame silence you whereas guilt is a good feeling guilt is when you've done something wrong and means you need to make amends now as we've said obviously we didn't make the choice it was my parents choice I don't think that absolves us of responsibility I think what that means is okay and you know again I feel guilty I can write articles about my guilt or whatever whatever but that again isn't really enough we need to action that guilt even if it's not our of our own making and that might look it that could look different in different ways but we can try our hardest to actively if we're in hiring positions be more diverse what else can we do be open about it I think also I asked my question and answered it myself but be open about it because again it's that thing I think people think you'll steal stuff from them if they admit why they have it and actually I think that really needs to change and we need to be a bit less fearful that and try and hoard the opportunity because we're afraid it will come up, be taken away from us. I think that's quite important as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think also we do, we just need to have these conversations out in the open and um, really be very troubled about cuts to education funding and the inequalities of things like tuition fees, um, because these are the barriers to entry to so many things and we can all do our bit within our sphere and absolutely we should do that anyway whether that's like in how you hire or like as a manager or whatever but it's so much bigger than that as well but we all have a voice like I always say this um, like the Make Renting Fair campaign changed the law for a reason because I encourage people to make some noise and do something about an issue that was bugging them and making them poorer and screwing them over. We all live in a democracy. We can all write to our MPs. I know it feels totally futile, but that is literally how it works. That is how stuff gets done. I think that's a really great note to end this on. Um, We should all write to our MPs about the issue and just keep talking about it. Absolutely. And as Vicky's shown us that it's a very complex issue, everybody has different stories, and we really appreciate you taking the time to tell us yours. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks.